Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Flint, and it is almost Halloween, so I have one more spooky-themed episode because after this, Thanksgiving and Christmas are on. Actually, Christmas. People start Christmas on Halloween night now. That's a thing. Christmas music, Mariah Carey is going to be all over the radio. So this is almost like the end of fall. It shouldn't be because I feel like Thanksgiving is still kind of associated with fall and like cornucopias and giving thanks and the leaves changing. That stuff is all like fall themed, but you know, it'll be commercial Christmas time before you know it, like probably less than seven days away. I'm accidentally spreading misinformation. Christmas stuff is out now because I went into Home Goods with my sister like last week. Christmas decorations galore. I didn't even see anything that was Thanksgiving themed. And I drove past a Dunkin' today and I saw all the holiday flavoring. I wanted to save her fall, but I guess it's over. Anyway, I'm bringing you guys the scary truths of early medicine. So just as historical background, the first physician to emerge was Imhotep, chief minister to King Doger in the third millennium BC, who designed one of the earliest pyramids, the Step Pyramid at Saqqara, and who was later regarded as the Egyptian god of medicine and identified with the Greek god Asclepius. Now, the word physician comes from both Latin and Greek roots, physic, meaning natural science and medicine. So because of that, I'm going to start with early Roman medicine and treatments. And this stuff really isn't as scary as you'd think it would be because the Romans really were ahead of their time in a lot of more ways than one. So this is from um, UNRV Roman history, the ancient Roman doctors. So the doctors in ancient Rome were not nearly as highly regarded as the doctors in Greece. The position itself outside of the legions was considered a low social position fit for slaves, freedmen, and non-Latin citizens, mainly Greeks. So with Roman surgery, you would think, how much could they actually do based on what they had? Yes, they had running water, thanks to the aqueducts, but what could they do on a surgical level, having like no knowledge of the human body? Well, apparently they had some, because they did cataract surgery. A thin needle was pushed through the eye to break up the cataract and the remaining pieces were suctioned out through a long tube. Surprisingly, evidence suggests that this procedure had a moderate rate of vision improvement success. How did they know it would work though? So while we're still on the topic of ancient treatment, there are seven unusual ancient medical techniques that I just want to mention to you guys. The first one, and I will talk more about this in a minute, is bloodletting. For thousands of years, medical practitioners clung to the belief that sickness was merely a result of some bad blood. We're assuming that it probably began with the ancient Sumerians and Egyptians, but it didn't become common practice until the time of classical Greece and Rome. Influential physicians like Hippocrates maintained that the body was filled with four basic substances, or humors, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And these needed to be kept in balance to maintain proper health. So they're not totally wrong because there is bile, 
inside of our digestive systems. There's phlegm and there is blood. Black bile definitely would not be a good sign, but there's a whole lot more than just four different substances keeping our body together and creating a balance of homeostasis. So if anyone, any poor unsuspecting person were to come up with a fever, they were diagnosed with an overabundance of blood or bad blood or something. And to restore that bodily harmony, which we now call homeostasis, their doctor would simply just cut open a vein and drain all of their vital fluids into some random container or something. In some cases, leeches were even used to suck the blood directly from the skin, and I will get into which cases those are from. So this phlebotomy endured as a common medical practice well into the 19th century. Medieval doctors prescribed blood draining as a treatment for everything from a sore throat. That would be horrible. That means I would, I would have had the blood removed from me because how many sore throats have we all had in our lifetime? As a little kid, I was constantly getting them. I still do, usually in the late fall. So I'm hoping I don't get one. Uh, knock on wood, I don't want a sore throat. Those are the absolute worst. I'm sure there's worse than a sore throat, but no one wants to wake up and be like unable to swallow. But they treated it with bloodletting and then they would treat the plagues with bloodletting. Some barbers even listed it as a service along with haircuts and shaves. Number two, Humanity's oldest form of surgery is also one of the most gruesome. As far back as 7,000 years ago, civilizations around the world engaged in trepanation, the practice of boring holes into the skull as a meaning of curing illness. We can only imagine how bad that could have been. Just absolutely horrible and barbaric. Looking at that barbaric act and studying. Researchers can only speculate on how it even developed. A common theory holds that it may have been some form of tribal ritual or even a method for releasing some kind of evil that were possessing the sick and mentally ill. We don't know. Some others believe that it was more of a conventional surgery used to treat epilepsy, headaches, abscesses, and blood clots. A lot of evidence actually shows that many of the patients survived the surgery. Number three, mercury. Mercury is notorious for its toxic properties, but it was once used as a common elixir in topical medicine. The ancient Persians and Greeks considered it a useful ointment and second century Chinese alchemists prized liquid mercury or quicksilver and red mercury sulfide for their supposed ability to increase lifespan. Imagine them now though, we have doctors and scientists who have figured out that there are non-coding extensions on the end of DNA. They're called telomeres. They serve a technical function, um, like the aglet of a shoelace. They're kind of on the end. So when the DNA duplicates, that little ending, the telomere gets shorter. And what it actually is, I guess, is a function of age. When the genes that drop off are gone, we reach the point where we're likely to die of old age because the strand is so short. We don't have the telomeres anymore. They just shorten and shorten and shorten. But I guess there are, are trials that are happening and experiments to see if we can stop the shortening of these telomeres. So back to when people were like inhaling and drinking mercury, some healers were even promising that by consuming these noxious brews containing the mercury, the sulfur, arsenic, their patients would gain eternal life and the ability to walk on water. 
Number four, we have animal dung ointments. That's really, really gross. Ancient Egyptians had a remarkably well-organized medical system. So that part's cool, that's not scary. I mean, it's a little bit mysterious. They had all of this stuff and they were able to build these gigantic, just colossal architectural pieces out of like clay and we don't know how they did it, but they were really advanced too. They were using lizard blood, dead mice, mud and moldy bread as topical ointments and dressings. But who knows, maybe they were onto something because some types of animal feces actually do contain antibiotic substances because there's microflora in them. So who knows? Number five, purposely collapsing lungs to cure tuberculosis. So usually um, way, way back when, TB was a huge thing. If you caught it, most likely you were going to die relatively quickly. Now, this was a treatment used to cure cavitary tuberculosis, specifically the type of the upper lungs, and it became most commonly used between the 1930s and 1950s. So this was some time before any effective anti-tuberculosis medication had been created. What they were doing for this technique was that they were putting like things inside that cavity under the upper ribs, like acrylic balls, oils, ping pong balls, rubber sheets, gauze, and that would cause the lung to collapse. And so even in the 1930s to the 1950s, medical professionals believed that a collapsed lung would heal more quickly. No. Absolutely not, because the procedure was going to lead to more things going wrong, like hemorrhages and infections. And that's really scary because they actually thought they were doing something effective. Number six, radium water and its life-changing benefits. So I, I did want to bring up this radium stuff because it's really scary that people actually believed that this was a good thing for you to ingest. So it's 1898. Radium was discovered by Marie Curie, who um, was the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, and her husband. It was quickly put to use as a cancer treatment. By the 1910s, radium was used like we use vitamins until people's jaws started coming off. When ingested, radium is particularly dangerous. It behaves chemically very much like calcium does. And since the body uses calcium to make bone, and I think I talked about that in the last episode of this podcast, um, the ingested radium is going to be mistaken for calcium and it'll be incorporated into the bones, which make up your skeleton. So the major health risk of ingesting radium is radiation-induced bone necrosis and bone cancers. And how soon it developed just depended on the dose. But at very high doses, like for example, that the radium girls were exposed to, it only took just a few years for these really terrible things to start developing. So the luminous paint, which worked in converting the radiation into light through a fluorescent chemical, was one of the most successful radium-based products. By putting the brushes in their mouths, these radium girls, and these were girls who were working in a watch factory, were especially at risk. So why were they putting these brushes in their mouths? 
because it was the easiest way to get a fine point on the brush to paint on the numbers in the watch as small as a single millimeter in width. That's really, really sad and terrifying. And number seven, hydroelectric baths for migraines. So imagine taking a radio or a toaster or something into the bathtub. That is fatal. But for several decades, starting in the late 19th century, some doctors recommended treating chronic migraines by lounging in a hydroelectric bath, a warm tub with a small current passing through the water. Doctors eventually became skeptical of this method, and today's migraine sufferers can turn to way more effective pharmaceutical treatments that should not, hopefully, be fatal. So going back to the bloodletting thing, because I did say that I would talk about that a little bit more, um, the doctors believed there was that toxic imbalance. So they were lancing and like rubbing toads on or applying leeches to people's skin. And this specifically happened a lot during the bubonic plague. They're applying leeches to the swollen lymph nodes that the infection was causing and they thought that that was removing the illness. And this bloodletting continued until way into the 19th century, until it was discredited and discontinued. Poor George Washington. We don't know what the doctors did to him. They actually probably killed him faster than he would have died from the infection that he had alone. And a lot of people are saying it was croup. Some historians say influenza, others say it was some other type of viral infection. But the doctors definitely had a hand in helping him pass away sooner by all the crazy bloodletting and stuff that they did. And I think one of the most notorious institutions that carried out most, if not all of the things that I mentioned and more, were the insane asylums. Patients endured these horrifying treatments, the ice baths, electric shock therapy, purging, bloodletting, straight jackets, forced drugging, and lobotomies, all of which were considered legitimate medical practices at the time. That's really scary. It wasn't until the terrifying conditions at these mental health facilities were revealed through undercover investigations and patient witnesses that they were brought to light. So asylums always look creepy. Every time you see some kind of documentary about one or some historical video on how they operated, they always just look so scary and off-putting. It was like a villainous system of inhumanity. That's not what was originally intended for them, but that is definitely what happened. Since that was also long before any real studies on how to improve mental health and how to diagnose patients with a mental health disorder, a neurodegenerative disorder, a neurodevelopmental issue, any of that. That was before that stuff was happening. So they were just labeling these people as crazy and then putting them through these torturous quote-unquote treatments. So we may think we are in the clear, this kind of crazy stuff doesn't happen to us anymore in the healthcare field, but actually in contemporary times, there are some scary things happening. Um, the first thing that I think is terrible and evil is that children are receiving gender reaffirming surgeries that are irreversible because there are people who claim that biological gender is a social construct and they're taking advantage of the curiosity and innocence of little children at school. Okay, five-year-olds still 
have a lot of imagination. They pretend to be like animals and stuff outside at recess. They probably think that they can be swallowed by a bathtub drain. They don't know how to read most of the time. They're so small and they just want to be held and they want to be with their families. Why on earth would you have any doctor willing to perform something so terrible on a child? This child doesn't really even have a concept of life yet outside of their little bubble of fun. So that's really scary because a lot of kids have already fallen prey to this. And it's all intentional. So another thing I think is really frightening is that there are some quote-unquote professionals out there who tend to be globalist and tend to care about the carrying capacity of Earth so much that they'll do things to decrease the population. They really don't have a problem with abortion because there are too many people on this Earth anyway. And climate change is such a big issue to them that they'd rather let people die or kill them before they're actually born because they want to conserve the planet. So I think that's really scary because dehumanization is not a good thing ever. And they're framing it as a women's rights issue on feminist Instagram pages. And they're promoting dangerous mis- and disinformation about what a fetus looks like at nine weeks old, 10 weeks old, versus how the conspiracy theorist pro-lifers think that a fetus looks like at nine or 10 weeks old. So on the far left mainstream media feminist pages, the fetus is shown as this white papery, like wet toilet paper tissue or lining. And they're like, see, that's what it looks like. You don't have to worry about it at all. But in reality, according to biological science, that is not anywhere near what a fetus looks like at that age. So scary. But with that, I'm just going to wrap up this episode. Hopefully I didn't scare any of you guys too much or make anybody lose their appetite. Um, Sorry if I did, but it is interesting to look back over all these treatments and surgeries and things that were done by medical professionals and doctors in the past and see how completely wrong, unethical, immoral, inhuman they seem now. But as always, guys, thank you for the listen. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And while you're here, be sure to check out all the other great podcasters that are here on this platform. And I will catch you guys back next week right here on the BMG Network.